Hello and welcome to this episode of the Art and Design of Sci-Fi and Fantasy, Mystery and Horror. Today I speak with Michael Tangeman and Charles Exley about a new book the two have done on Japanese mystery fiction, uh, detective fiction, uh, 13 stories that cover 125 years of Japanese history. So thank you and enjoy. I'm speaking with Michael Tangeman and Charles Exley editors of Old Crimes, New Scenes, A Century of Innovations in Japanese Mystery Fiction. Thank you both for speaking with me. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. So, uh, let me, so you two can answer these questions individually. Um, how did you get into studying this subject and writing on it? And uh, I guess let's start with Michael. So, I worked on two writers known for detective fiction in grad school. One of the author I wrote my my master's thesis on is best known for his um, uh, mysteries and tales of the bazaar, written primarily in the 1920s, 1930s. Uh, he's been widely translated. His name is Edogawa Rambo. Mm-hmm. And my dissertation was on an author who's also known for mysteries, um, and has had some translations, but not that many. So his name is Matsumoto Seicho. Mm-hmm. So I read my share of mysteries growing up. Obviously, I was reading them in English. And when I learned that, when I learned in grad school that, as a matter of fact, the Japanese write mysteries too, uh, I got interested in that. And uh, we were able to um, do a pretty wide variety um, in a couple of global graduate seminars. So that's how I got interested in mystery fiction. Okay. And, and I meant to say um, editing, not writing um, earlier. So, and Charles? Well, uh, I started out, let's see, so in graduate school, and uh, I wrote a dissertation on a relatively unknown uh, author from the pre-war period named Sato Haru. And he's mainly known as a kind of a highbrow, very literary, very stylistic writer. But one of his main interests in the 1910s and 1920s was detective and mystery fiction, especially stuff written by Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. And so he read works by Poe, he translated into Japanese works by Poe, and he was pretty much obsessed with Poe. Um, Sato's contemporary other writers at the same time who were better known for, you know, so-called highbrow literary fiction also got really interested in detective and mystery fiction. And so I became interested in mystery fiction basically working on Sato. And then once I wrote a book on that topic, Sato Haro in Modern Japanese Fiction, and then as a kind of a spin-off of that project, I wanting to learn more about detective and mystery fiction in general. Mm-hmm. And that's what brought me to this book project. But Charles and I met um, back in, what, 2009, 2010, at an academic conference in uh, Vancouver. And soon after that, I put out um, a, a call for submissions for translations and... Um, he uh, he responded with uh, his Sakoharo piece, and then uh, the translation sat in my laptop for about a decade. And then Charles and I reconnected a couple years ago, and uh, we decided to work on this project together. Hmm. So um, let's talk about the book then. It has I I the blurb says it has thirteen stories, and looking at the length, it looks like they're about twenty-five to thirty pages on average. Um, the story. So I'm curious, how did you choose the stories that you included? And would you say, uh, so are they mystery short fiction, you know, short stories, or how would you um, characterize them? So these are all works of fiction. Um, we have one poem, uh, which is only about three or four pages in translation. We have one um, teleplay. Uh, that's uh, a little longer, but the rest of the pieces are all works of 
people, I guess you could call them short stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted to have an anthology that represented authors and works that aren't already widely available in English. Hmm. So we selected authors who are known for their mysteries uh, in, in Japan or who are not known as mystery writers but have nonetheless written mysteries. Mm-hmm. And so we have five of the authors, five of the 13 authors are authors of high literary fiction, pure fiction, if you use the Japanese term, and the other eight authors are thought of as only authors of popular fiction or just popular fiction, just detective fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of our objectives was to show how pervasive the use of the mystery genre has been over the last century in Japan. Can I give my answer to that as well, Chris? Oh, please. It, it's very similar to Michael's, but I would characterize the 13 stories um, as a patchwork quilt. And essentially we, you know, if you're looking around for stories written, translated into English at this point, you can find a couple of collections of short stories by famous writers, but most of the works available now are single novels written by individual authors that have been really well translated into English. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, we, we discussed this a little bit and, um, you know, the coverage of the stories is really important to us. This collection covers over a hundred years, maybe 125 years, 1889 to 2007, technically. Um, so we're covering a very, very wide span of time. And we want to show or showcase a lot of different kinds of authors that you might not expect, you know, for writing mystery fiction. They come from different styles. They come from different time periods. They're interested in different kinds of detective and mystery fiction. But like a patchwork quilt, they kind of all come together in a really interesting, motley assemblage um, that shows you you know, if you're a student, you know, wanting to learn a little bit more about Japanese mystery and detective fiction, this gives you a really nice, long view of how Japanese fiction has developed over the last hundred years. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask if about the styles. You know, you have your, you know, your cozies, your police procedurals. You know, your, I guess maybe psychological thrillers, and it, so it sounds like you do cover different styles, but. Uh, do the Japanese have sort of different variations on those kind of styles? You know, a, a unique Japanese uh, lo- view? Charles and I were talking about this the other day, and uh, he suggested that there's a, a subgenre of mystery in Japan that doesn't exist widely in the West, and that's what I would call a, a train mystery, T-R-A-I-N, within the mode of travel. Mm-hmm. There's one author who's translated in this, um, who is known almost exclusive for writing almost exclusively mysteries in which travel is featured. But not only is it just travel, it's travel in which travel by rail plays in a, an essential part. Mm-hmm. So his mysteries take place on trains at uh, uh, tourist destinations. Uh, and so his mysteries feature timetables and um, detailed description of the routes that are taken. So that could be something unique that I don't know we that we find so much in the mystery fiction of other countries where train travel is not as ubiquitous as it is in Japan. Mm-hmm. So is this is that the reason you chose that particular author, because he um, showcased this subgenre, or was there something else about his writing that uh, you wanted to showcase, and it was just a happy coincidence? So I selected him because he's known, because he's extremely popular, um, 
he has a uh, he has a master sleuth who's a he's a, a policeman. He's not a private detective like Holmes, but he's a policeman. Mm-hmm. He has a recurring character. He's very popular. He's been active for a number of decades, and this story features train travel. But I selected it because it also highlights how um, technological advances can be used to create a twist in the mystery. This mystery was published in 1989, and it uh, hinges around a portable fax, portable fax machine used on a train. Hmm. Um, it's all very dated now, but back in 1989, it was high tech. And so, uh, that combination is what led me to select this author and this work. Mm-hmm. And Charles, you were going to add something? I was going to say that, uh, I agree with everything that Michael has said that, um, you know, my answer would be that there are some things that are very distinctively Japanese about these stories in that, you know, it's important in detective fiction to get a lot of local information, right? Just feel like you're really immersing yourself in a very specific local place mm. and time. But it's also true that pretty much all of these writers love to read American, British, French, or other detective industry fiction from around the world, mm. right? And so they're constantly in conversation with each other. Uh, just to give you one example of that process, um, sometimes this is this happens because the author is conscious of it. Um, sometimes it happens just because Michael and I sort of feel like it has a really interesting um, correspondence with something, you know, uh, from America or from England or from France or something. Just to give you one example of that. Uh, One of my favorite stories in this collection features a husband and wife uh, duo. The wife is a jet-setting tour guide, and the husband is a stay-at-home, he's basically an armchair detective. So she travels around the world and comes back and tells him a lot of stories, and then he basically spends, he writes, technically he's a travel writer, Using all of her stories, he writes, you know, stuff for magazines and so forth. But she comes home with a story about a murdered man. And the husband, who has no connection whatsoever to these characters, helps her solve the crime. And that kind of husband and wife duo really reminds me of, I don't, you're probably familiar with this, um, Thin Man series. Mm-hmm. It was really popular, um, you know, based on a novel by Dashiell Hammett starring William Powell and Myrna Loy. Right. Uh, there are a couple of, there are a number of, you know, films in that series that are really wonderful to watch nowadays because the, you know, that sort of jaunty banter between the husband and the wife, you know, and they work together, you know, to solve crimes and so forth. And there's no direct connection between this story set in the 1980s in Japan in that, you know, 1930s, 1940s series in Hollywood. But they have a very similar feeling. And that kind of unusual correspondence makes it an even more interesting story, I think, for American audiences to read. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, one of the other interesting things I think about that story that Charles was talking about is that it was written at a time in Japan when gender roles were being reconsidered, hmm. when women were being allowed to take more active roles outside of the home. And so here we have this, she's not a super sleuth, she's kind of a super, she's a super tour guide. We have this super tour guide uh, married to this super sleuth, and she leaving the home to work outside the home and being really good at it is kind of a new model of what the potential could be for Japanese women. And she stays at home, but the author, who's a woman, takes great pains to explain that he's not at all effeminate. 
that he was a prominent pitcher at the high school baseball tournament, which is a summer rite of passage in Japan. So he's very masculine, but he's also comfortable at home and cooking and cleaning. And so it, you can read a lot about the country in these stories, even if you're not trying to solve the mystery. So it sounds like um, one of the threads maybe is that um, each of this, these stories, you make sure it, it gives a sense of time, place, and society um, for when it was written. Would that would that be accurate? Very much so. Do you want to talk about that, Charles? None of that. I would agree. The I mean, from the very first story that uh, is set in the Meiji period in the nineteen or eighteen eighties, late eighteen eighties, mm-hmm. we have a story that's about the clash of cultures. That's about the clash between different ways of thinking. That's uh, about the clash between the East and the West. This is what highlights that period of Japanese history. When Japan, soon after Japan had decided to aggressively open itself up to the West mm-hmm. and sent out its best and brightest to learn about Western Europe and the United States and return to Japan with that information about institutions and art and philosophy and science. And that's what we see in this story, the first story, um, Merciless. It's a story that's about East versus West and Old versus New. Mm-hmm. It's one of the first Japanese stories that's wholly originally Japanese. One of the first Japanese mysteries that's wholly originally Japanese. That's not a copy of or based on something from the West. Would you say that the book then, could you characterize it as a series of historical mystery fiction stories? Is that possible? Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say they are historical mysteries, but um, uh, what I, I would say that it, it basically gives the reader a chance to travel through the history of detective fiction, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Um but occasionally, there are some historical stories. Um, I'll give you one example. Uh, the most famous modern Japanese novelist is Natsume Sosen, right? He and he's a very, very famous. He used to his face used to be on the one thousand yen notes in Japan up until a few years ago. Very, you know, everybody knows Natsume Sosen. His hatred and distrust of detectives was really, really legendary. He he hated detectives. He thought that they basically spent their time looking at other people's dirty laundry. He felt like that was inappropriate. It's really clear in many of his novels that he has nothing but disdain for detectives. And so in one of the stories that we've included, um, there's a fictional pairing between Natsume Sosaki uh, and Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. And so this is kind of interesting because Sosaki was kind of the first Japanese study abroad student. He traveled to London uh, in 1900, mm-hmm. right, to study English, to learn a little bit more about English literature and stuff like that. So he physically went to London at the beginning of the 20th century. And so he's a really famous example of, uh, you know, a literary person who physically traveled to London. Sherlock Holmes is the most famous Londoner, fictional Londoner, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And fans loved him so much, of course, that they refused to allow him to die. Mm-hmm. And so this story said in the this story from the 1950s, um, it has a lot of fun with the real Natsume Soseki traveling, you know, being in London and encountering the fictional Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. and and it takes, you know, it, it uses that sort of knowledge. 
kind of looks pained. He looks like he's having uh, dyspepsia or something like that. Mm. And he, he looks like he doesn't really want to um, spend a lot of time with Holmes as a detective. Mm. And it adds this kind of wonderful dynamic. Michael was talking about East and West, you know, and old and new kind of are often brought together in these stories, but uh, it also adds a kind of a racial dimension because Holmes basically sees Soseki as a, you know, a young, yellow gentleman, mm. right? And so there's a lot of exploration in this story about, you know, an encounter between an Englishman and a Japanese is an encounter between East and West, but it's also an encounter between Caucasian and Asiatic, mm. you know, races at the same time. So it, it's wonderfully complex, I think you yeah, I, I think I was sort of uh, playfully misusing the term historical fiction in that that would be someone writing about a period before, you know, before they were born, perhaps, whereas these stories were written mostly by people writing about their own age, you know, about their own um, time period. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah that, is, that is correct. That's definitely a... Um that's definitely a fair assertion. And, you know, the whole point of a lot of these detective stories is to use the relatively new ideas about psychology and logical uh, deduction, you know, and stuff like that to help to make sense of things that are going on around them in real time or in their time. So what, I, I think what you said is, is definitely that. Okay. Um, now, do any of the stories, um, there, there are three different sort of subject matters I'm curious about, um, and I'll list all three and you can address them all or none or w w however you want to. Um, I'm thinking about stories with anti-heroes, stories that deal with uh, organized crime like Yakuza, um, and stories that deal with post-war issues, either, you know, victory after the Russo-Japanese War, uh, or even World War I, um, or defeat after World World War II. So, uh, Michael, I guess you can start. Well, let's see. I think the issues of the post-war are probably the most prominently represented of those three categories. Mm -hmm. The... Uh, this, this story that Charles translated called The Code was written in 1948. And it's, I think it's my favorite story in the anthology. It's, it's written in 1948. Um, and it's about a man in the immediate post war attempting to discover how a copy of his book ended up in his best friend's library. So I was away at the front as a soldier, and somehow my book ended up in my best friend's library. So he begins to suspect his wife mm. of having had an affair with, the, um, uh, with his best friend. His best friend died at the front. There are other tragedies that that happened to that that uh, that in other tragedies that were visited upon the family in uh, uh, during the war are brought to light. And I think this story is my favorite because it has the most emotionally powerful ending. And when we talk about this story in class, I ask students if this is really a mystery. And the students say, no, it's not a mystery because... He invented the thing that was that he was investigating. So there, there was no crime. There was nothing done. There was nothing wrong. So that's written in the immediate post-war and deals with the effects of the war. But I would argue that every story after that also represents a very specific time um, and place. Um, and the rise of unions in Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, is depicted in Pitfall by uh, Abe Kobo. Um, there, 
Roman honeymoon and the two, um, the detective couple mm-hmm. and what they represent. We talked about uh, the train mystery and murderous intent on the Kagayaki Super Express mm-hmm. and how that depicts uh, technological changes in post-war Japan. Um, so that's, that's, that's where I will I'll stop there. Okay. And Charles? I would say, uh, just to follow up on what Michael said, uh, or to, you know, try to pick up on those three themes that you're interested in, um, as far as organized crime is concerned, we really don't have any stories that deal with the world of organized crime. Mm. Um, I was kind of thinking about why is that the case. Michael, do you want to... Add something to that. I'm sorry to to contradict you, but if you, if you recall, there's mention of organized crime and the bug crawling on the ground. It's certainly not central to the narrative, right. but but it's it's peripherally mentioned. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. No, but it's. Uh, I was going to talk about bug crawling on the ground as an example of an anti-hero, possibly. Uh, and organized, okay, so I take that back. One of the stories does have some connection to organized crime, but um, that's really not a main feature of a lot of the crimes that happen in these detective and mystery stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was going to work my way up to talking about anti-heroes is, is kind of an interesting thing to think about in connection to this anthology because uh, a lot of the detectives that are presented in the various stories are, you know, kind of in the, are a little bit eccentric, right? So they're not exactly anti-heroes, but they're not classically successful protagonists or detectives either. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think you'll find a lot of examples in Japanese literature of detectives who are a little bit more like anti-heroes than they are like heroes, mm-hmm. generally speaking. And that's kind of an interesting um, maybe thread that ties some of the stories together. I was going to use the example of Bug crawling on the ground uh, because the main character in that story used to be a cop. You know, he, he was a beat cop, he spent lots of time as a detective, and he embodies everything that you would expect of a very well-trained, middle-ranking detective. Then he loses his job for reasons that we learn about in the course of the, of the story. And he's now working uh, a couple of warehouse jobs. He's like a rent-a-cop, he's a security guard. Uh, you know, he goes around to make sure that the doors are locked and, you know, that all the packing tape has been removed from the ground and stuff like this. Uh, and while he's, you know, sort of conducting his sort of security guard, um, he's, you know, kind of going about his routine as a new security guard, um, a crime happened in his neighborhood. And you, you sort of learn that even though he's now nobody, you know, no one knows about him, he's just some random guy who walks from his part-time job A to part-time job B. He happens to walk, you know, in a very interesting, very specific, uh, laid-out path to get from one job to the other. Uh, but nobody in the neighborhood cares anything about him. And as you get deeper and deeper into the story, you realize that all of the things that he does in his security job position are things that were kind of baked into him, things that he learned on the job as a cop. And so the, longer, the deeper you read into the story, the more you realize that Essentially, once a cop, always a cop. He's trained his body and his, the way that he thinks about what he sees around him and the way that he processes things around him 
with this kind of training that he had in his former life as a detective. But the way that everybody around him sees him, he's just some creepy guy who's always walking through the neighborhood Mm -hmm. at strange hours of the night with a Boston bag, you know, with a change of clothes. They don't know why he's there. They don't really care. Mm-hmm. Um, they just don't want, you know, they don't want some creepy guy walking through their hybrid neighbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you do get, you get some examples of anti-heroes in stories uh, like that. It's more because they are nondescript, unusual, unlikely detectives. Mm-hmm. So now, I imagine the universe of stories to choose from is uh, in the hundreds or even thousands. Um, how many stories were you down to when you had to make your, your final cuts? You know, how, how many other um, strong candidates were there uh, for, for this? Um, there were probably about another dozen or so strong candidates. The issue, there were other stories that we wanted to include, but include anyone representing the author to contact us. Hmm. So I wish there were more uh, works by women writers, for example. Hmm. But um, at least one of the people that we wanted to include was a woman writer, very prominent in Japan, and we couldn't get anyone from her representing her to, to give us permission. Um, yeah, so there were probably about two dozen other pieces. Um, if you... You know, if, if you do a Wikipedia search and start there for Japanese detective authors, then you'll get a huge list. And then if you winnow that down to those that have been translated into whatever language you read, then you'll get uh, a somewhat smaller list, but still nonetheless a, a, a vast expense. Um, and Charles and I went back and forth on whether or not to attempt to include a list of Japanese authors of mystery fiction. And we decided that because of Google, um, that we would just be the jumping off point and we wouldn't attempt to, uh, to categorize this or list up a, um, uh, a group that's growing every year. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it's fair to say this is not exactly the answer to your question, Chris, but, uh, we did sort of, we had sort of two things in mind when we were looking around for stories. Uh, and the first thing was, who are the authors that English readers already know really well? And the other thing that we had in mind was, who are authors that are really widely known in Japan, but who are not yet in America. And so we sort of, we kind of, we went through the process that Michael described, trying to highlight as many of these people that have not yet been discovered in English, but in Japan are already well-known and quite established in Spain. And on the flip side, if you were to do share some of these names of the um, the authors of pure artistic literary fiction, if you were to share those names with Japanese readers, they would recognize them all immediately. Mm-hmm. However, they might not necessarily associate them with detective fiction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I had a question about the translations. Um, are there any uh, particular Japanese words that are perhaps difficult um, to render in English properly. Um, I'm curious what some of those are, you know, especially anything related, detective-related, you know, police, criminal-type uh, words, that sort of thing. There are... It's, it's really interesting. I would say, on the one hand, there are a lot of words that are difficult to translate into English for various reasons. Uh, but most of the basic... I would say that most of the basic terms about detectives, about police work, you know, about solving a crime, are terms that are really well established in Japanese just as in English. And so, if those were not the kind of words that gave us a lot to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, 
the piece that we did from 
feel really uh, to capture the atmosphere as accurately as possible. That was probably the most enjoyable part. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was just going to echo that the collaboration was really um, was really valuable. Uh, it made the anthology better. Uh, I learned about the language and culture uh, from working with Charles, and um, you know, it, 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 the collaboration was was invaluable. Then you know, collaborating with our translators as well, working through um, their production, uh, uh, their version of the story. It was a learning experience on this side of the book too. So, um, and I'll start with um, Charles on this one. Uh, what what did you discover during the project that most surprised you? I don't know. That's a hard one to to give you a, a direct answer to, but so, maybe Michael has a good yeah. answer. If I may, yes. What what surprised me most was the variety of interpretation that um, the Japanese and English are quite different languages linguistically. They're obviously orthographically very different. Japanese uses three different writing systems, four if you count the Western alphabet, and English uses one writing system. So the, the way that authors use the language in various uh, modes that's experimental was was fascinating. The way that the translators um, reacted to those original works was really interesting as well. Um, and so I think as a as an editor, I ended up I think learning more uh, about subjects that. I'd never considered. Was there anything in this work that had an emotional impact of any kind on you, either positively or maybe you came across something that kind of, uh, I don't want to say upset, but, you know, kind of moved you um, in a sad way, say? Um, Michael, you can start if, you, if you'd like. Yes, I, mean, I mentioned it earlier briefly, but the story, uh, The Code by Sakaguchi Ango, uh, it's, I think it asks interesting, interesting questions about the mystery genre, but really, the, I think the best aspect of it is the emotional punch that it delivers at the end of the story. And I don't know that it's something that, it's certainly something that I didn't, it's certainly an ending that I didn't predict, um, but it's, it's a realistic ending. Uh, and it's very emotionally powerful. So I highly recommend The Code if you're looking for uh, a story that pulls at your heartstrings. Mm-hmm. And Charles? You know, uh, it's tough to go second because I would probably vote for The Code uh, as well mm-hmm. as being the most uh, powerful story, emotionally speaking. Although it's really interesting that most of this happened as a result of the editing process and reading this story over and over and over again, but Bug Crawling on the Ground is also, for me, really emotionally satisfying, uh, just because the, you know, that main character who is so nondescript and, uh, you know, ignored by most people in everyday life, he's got this kind of interesting... Uh, let's call it an obsession or fondness for bugs. You know, and, and at the end of the story, his wife um, is trying to brush away and probably crush an, an ant that's crawling on the ground. And he, and he stops her and says, no, no, honey, don't, you know, don't mess with the ant because uh, basically the ant is me. He identifies closely with bugs. Because he really, there's something almost existentially about him. He's a very nondescript kind of a guy. But he also has, you know, all of this innate, the 
time. And it's a wonderful, I found it really emotionally satisfying that this guy would be, you know, really nondescript on the one hand, but also, thanks to the story, we also understand how valuable he can be at the same time. So I would put that one up there. Did um, and I'm not sure. Have, have both of you been to Japan before, or have you? Have you? Uh, I lived there for a couple of years back in the early '90s, mm-hmm. and um, I've been back a number of times since. Mm-hmm. And, and Charles, same for me. I've been uh, usually. I've lived uh, off and on in Japan for. Uh, for a while, usually connected to like the American academic year. So I, I go over to Japan in the summertime a lot, you know, during summer vacation. Uh, and I've studied in, in Japan for, you know, a year and a half, a year at a time. Uh, and I've been going to Japan since about 1992. And these stories, did they, um, did they get you to see Japan in a new way, in, in, in any way, or did they change anything you were familiar with, or that you thought you, you understood fully? For me, can I answer that? Um, for me, it's a little bit more like, uh, you know, when you read a, a story that you get really absorbed in, you kind of, enjoy, it's a lot of fun to visit that location and to kind of see the locations that are mentioned, the streets, you know, the coffee shops, the, you know, the points of interest that are mentioned in a story to kind of reinforce the connection that you have to the work. Uh, and I've done that for a couple of the stories in this collection. Uh, I don't know if... Um, in particular, I guess I would say in the Tanizaki story on the road, uh, that's a, a, a definitely a really fun story because it's um, it because a private detective is following a man that turns out to be a criminal, and they're essentially walking through famous parts of town including Ginza, which is a really famous part of Tokyo that has lots of high-end department stores and uh, shopping. It's a big shopping district. And, you know, for somebody like me, I enjoy visiting places in Japan because I've read about them in stories, sometimes detective stories, sometimes, you know, other kinds of stories as well. Uh, but I do, I enjoy making the connection between the real places and the places I've read about. Mm-hmm. And Michael? As for me, I suppose I was most surprised by some of the material in Merciless, the first story in the anthology, because I have not studied um, the place of Chinese immigrants in Japan in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. And so, and the story spend some time depicting what life was like uh, on the outskirts of Japanese society, if you will, of four Chinese nationals living in Japan in the the late 1880s, 1890s. So that was something that uh, was new to me. Okay. Um, And now, apart from being entertaining and informative, um, what do the two of you hope uh, the book will do for readers. I hope the book will open up the open up to readers the potential for what the mystery genre can do in in creative hands. Um, the mystery genre can be extremely formulaic, and we can all list authors in any language you can read that crank out the same mystery over and over and over with different names in different places. But I think the works that are represented here are special because they show how authors can take that standard 
set of criteria for a mystery and manipulate it to make a comment about society or to make a comment about art or to make a comment about uh, the pathos of, of human existence. Um, and so I think, I think because mysteries are categorized as pop literature, they can be looked down upon. And sometimes they deserve to be looked down upon. But there are bad mysteries out there. <laughs> I don't think there are bad mysteries in this collection. <laughs> I think that these are works through which you can read Japan at the same time that you're reading a mystery. <laughs> Charles? For me, the, I would just say that the, there's this really, I think that readers of this collection will get a really good sense of the ongoing conversation between Japanese mystery writers and Western mystery writers, you know. Uh, most of these writers got interested in detective or mystery fiction because they read something by Edgar Allan Poe or because they loved Sherlock Holmes or maybe Agatha Christie or, you know, you name it, any number of really well-known uh, Western writers. And so there's this constant back and forth between wanting to bring in elements that they've read about in Western detective stories, but also make them believable and interesting in the local Japanese context at the same time. And that kind of back and forth process uh, I'm calling it a conversation, but uh, I think you see that going on in many different ways um, over the 125 years worth of stories that we've done. And I think I think people will really recognize something that they already know, you know, something that they've already read uh, in these stories. And at the same time, they'll see some unexpected things that they didn't know about at the same time. And that I think that combination is uh, pretty interesting. Can you speak to any difficulties um, the two of you had in getting the book finished and published? And uh, if there were, um, how did you overcome those? And you mentioned a few already, a couple issues, but uh, if you have any others. This is the biggest project I've been involved on. Uh, and so it was very helpful to have a collaborator uh, like Charles and to have uh, a publisher who was behind the project, to have um, a design artist who was design was behind the project. And uh, that was that was really very helpful to me. It was a learning that was another aspect of the learning process for me. I wanted everything to be done right now. So for me, the patience, being patient was the difficult part in uh, waiting for people to get drafts of translations back or waiting to hear from this person about um, about publication rights, etc. So I felt like I had dragged my heels on this project long enough, and so I wanted answers and results immediately. Charles was much more patient, and Charles was very good at talking me down and, and mellowing me out, so uh, he was uh, an excellent collaborator in many ways, one of which was uh, he's kind of my uh, my counselor, hmm. my uh, my therapist for the book. Mm-hmm. And Charles? We worked, we worked really well together. Uh, you're right to ask about the... We got lucky. I mean, we, we proposed this idea and, um, we found a publisher who was really enthusiastic about the project. So that was really helpful and important. Um, we spent a lot of time, or a lot of this was, was me. Sometimes the publisher will do this kind of stuff, but, uh, we ended up having to do most of the work um, to identify who had the copyright for each of these stories, who was, you know, who was uh, able to give us permission to translate the stories from Japanese into English, 
you know, sort of, and that's a kind of a really, really painstaking process, uh, especially when you're working with works from so many different time periods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know whether you beep anything out in your podcast or not, but uh, we had to work with, in particular, one really, really busy lawyer mm-hmm. uh, who strung us along for about, what, four months, uh, and then accused us of, you know, not being very helpful in the process. Uh, but that's, that's the kind of thing that you really, you don't have a choice uh, in the matter. You, you have to kind of negotiate through sometimes very difficult copyright situations, sometimes really easy copyright situations, you know, and... Uh, some of these people understand that we're a scholarly, a focused publication, that we're not trying to, you know, make millions of dollars off of this project. And other people were immediately kind of angling to see how much could they charge us, you know, for the rights just to uh, get the story translated because they were hoping that this would turn into be a, you know, a million, million dollar bestseller. So, um, each of the 13 stories was a slightly different case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it did take a lot of coordination. Um, but having somebody to work with, you know, having a team of people to work together with makes a big difference. Um, mm-hmm. th- that's, a, that's a part that doesn't really, uh, that you don't ever read about, per se, in the final product. Uh, and I'll, I'll just mention one other person who was really important. Um, I had some uh, really helpful uh, colleagues here who essentially helped me read through every single translation, you know, going from English to Japanese and Japanese back to English to make sure that we didn't make any obvious mistakes. Obviously, the final mistakes are all the responsibility of me and Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had some really great, um, essentially the equivalent of fact checkers mm-hmm. who spend a lot of time making sure that we look good in the end. Um, and we're really grateful for them. I mean, they're, they're obviously acknowledged at the beginning of the book, mm-hmm. but they did a lot of really important work that you know, you don't necessarily appreciate as being a part of the final product, but uh, it, it takes a village. Yeah, yeah, it's a real, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so, what is the the next project for each of you? I have a couple of different projects that I'm working on right now. One of them is uh, has nothing to do with detective or mystery fiction. Uh, it's really about uh, traveling performers, Japanese traveling performers at the beginning of the 20th century, hmm. and how they how their travel around the world helped introduce Japan to all kinds of popular musical uh, practices, like vaudeville, um, you know, British musicals, and stuff like that. Hmm. Uh, but the other, the other project that I'm interested in thanks to my work and collaboration with Michael, is uh, a kind of a larger study of detective fiction and border crossing of different kinds. Hmm. And Michael? At some point, I look forward to working with Charles on that uh, that project on detective fiction and border crossing, if that makes sense to him. Mm-hmm. Um, my next project is related to one of the authors that we translated, the um, author Matsumoto Seijo, mm-hmm. whose work Stakeout is featured in the anthology. Uh, I am working on a series of translations of short stories of his that are not mysteries. He's widely known in the West uh, um, as an author of mystery fiction, and he's certainly well known for that in Japan as well. But he's also known for his historical fiction, his period fiction, uh, and for essays that he wrote about uh, history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm working on a series of translations that 
uh, will try to introduce to the reader of English Matsumoto Seicho's non-mystery fiction. And I'm also interested in a um, an author who's working now. Uh, his name is Angel Toll, and he writes um, very experimental sci-fi and very experimental fiction. Hmm. So uh, he's a great challenge as a translator because I'm not always sure what I'm reading. <laughs> but I've heard from Japanese that they're not always sure what they're reading when they pick up his books either. So. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so we're... Angel has actually been translated into English um, in the in the his stories called Self Reference Engine are available in uh, English translation by Sherry uh, Gallagher. Hmm. Interesting. Um, where can people find this book, and can they follow either of you on social media or web pages or anything like that? Um, well, it's it is available on Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. I don't believe we have a Kindle version yet. Um, it can also be purchased through the University of Hawaii Press. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and do you have? Are you on social media at all? Do you ever post anything? Or um, I don't have a professional social media presence. No. Okay. And, and Charles? Me either. I don't have a consistent social media presence either. We're a little bit old school as far as that goes. Okay. Okay. So that's all the questions I have. Do you, uh, either of you have any uh, final words or thoughts? I'd like to say something about the cover art, if I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really proud of the cover art. The, um, uh, the original design uh, that the publisher's design artist put together, I think, is uh, extremely suitable for the nature of the collection. In the original art that was created, um, the blue figure, the blue figures, was created by a, a former student of mine, Nancy Martinez, graduated with a BFA from Denison University. She created this piece as part of her um, graduate project in the BFA. And this piece was initially life-sized. So the top figure was probably about five feet tall, and the bottom figure that's joined to it was probably about three feet tall. So I guess it was over life size. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was really a striking photo. It was a really striking image. It was painted on a white wall, uh, and I thought it fit well with our underlying theme of, of growth and tradition and adaptation as represented in uh, the mystery genre, as represented in the stories that we selected for the anthology. I'm I'm very proud to include her art on the cover. Nice. And uh, Charles, anything to add? I don't have anything else to add. I just think, uh, well, I'll just say, I think it's a really readable collection, and uh, I think that there's a pretty good chance that, you know, pretty much anybody who's interested in some kind of detective or mystery fiction can pick this volume up and find something of interest. All right. Um, Well, thank you both for speaking with me. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit chrisalvarez.com or theartofsciencefiction.com for more great interviews, photos, and articles. Your visits help support this podcast. Please remember that my first name, Chris, does not have an H in it. One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.